Good morning. Um, we're going to be in Romans 10 today, verses 5 through 21. It says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Thank you, Amber. Well, this morning we continue our sermon series in the book of Romans, and we are, it's a long book, but we are making our way our way through and come to Romans chapter 10 this morning. And if you were here with us last week um, when Jared preached, you may remember that um, during his sermon, he gave us a quick, easy, four-word definition, explanation of the gospel. And so four words, if you're, if you're trying to wrestle with or kind of remember kind of the key elements of the gospel or the key elements that you need to share the gospel, when you share the gospel with others. He gave kind of a four-word definition, explanation of the gospel. God, man, Christ, and response. And so God is the creator, Lord, of the universe. Man is sinful and has rebelled against the Lord God, creator of the universe, and is deserving then of God's judgment. Christ came, substituted himself on the cross, taking the judgment of God that we deserve for our sins. Three days later, rising back again, gaining victory over, conquering sin and death. And then the proper response then to that good news message is faith and repentance. It's to repent and turn from our sins and to place our faith and trust in Jesus. Four simple, easy words, easy way to remember the key elements of the gospel for yourself, but also as you seek to share the gospel with others. God, man, Christ, and response. So this morning, the reason I bring all that up is this morning, 
We're going to, our passage this morning is going to primarily focus on that last element of the gospel, response. And in particular, what our passage this morning is going to do is going to, is going to explain to us, describe for us what it means to place your faith in Jesus, what, what it means to believe in Jesus, what it means to have faith in Jesus. And we see this 10 different times within our passage this morning, that 10 different times within verses 5 through 21, you're gonna, we're going to read the words faith or believe. It's not, on, it's not in every verse, but those, those two words are like in almost every verse, 10 different times. It's the main theme, the main point of this passage. It's, it's the proper response it's what, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What, it means to have, what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? And the reason this is important, like, like this is huge, right? And one of the reasons this is huge is because there's a, there's, a, there's a huge misunderstanding. And there's, there's huge confusion that, that's rampant, that's all over the place when it comes to what in the world that means, there's, there's huge confusion, huge misunderstanding what it, means to, what it means to believe in Jesus, what it means to have faith in Jesus, what it means to place your faith in Jesus. Like, people say that all the time. But when you begin to ask follow-up questions and begin to probe a little bit deeper into those words and, and what they mean when they say they believe in Jesus or have faith in Jesus or if they've placed their faith in Jesus... When you begin to probe deeper into what they mean by those words, what you soon discover is that people mean a whole host of different things from one another when they, when they, when they say these words. That when they say these words, they're not all talking about the same thing. They all mean something different by believing in Jesus, having faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, placing their faith in Jesus. So, so what in the world does it mean then? Like, let's not go around taking a poll, asking, hey, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? And coming up with some conclusion and on our own. Instead, let's, let's go to God's word and allow God's word to define for us what it means, the prop, what the proper response is, what it, what it means to believe in Jesus and have faith in Jesus and place our faith in Jesus. And this is huge, right? Like our answer to that question ultimately determines our eternal destiny. It ultimately determines our standing before God. It ultimately determines whether a person goes to heaven or a person goes to hell. So then we better have a, a good understanding, not can be confused in any way, shape, or form what it means when it comes to what it means to believe in Jesus and have faith in Jesus and what any of that actually means. So that's what, that's what we're going to see within our passage this morning. What we're going to see is, is this, and you see all this on your hand up here, but we're going to see four what I would call just aspects of saving faith. Like four, we're going to look at saving faith through four different, four different angles or four different lenses to, to understand what saving faith just entails and, and what it actually is and and, and the key elements of, of saving faith. So first, we're going to see the why of faith. In other words, we're going to see why faith is important when it comes to our salvation. Next, we're going to see the what of faith. And we're going to see 
what saving faith in Jesus entails and, and includes. Then we're going to see the how of faith, and we're going to see how saving faith in Jesus comes about, and then we're going to see the responsibility of faith. And we're going to see how God holds every single one of us accountable and responsible for whether or not we have saving faith in Jesus. So that's where we're headed during the rest of our time together. The why of faith, the what of faith, the how of faith, and the responsibility of faith. So let's begin our time together the way Paul does here, starting here in verse 5, with the what, or the why, excuse me, the why of faith. Why is faith, of all things, why is faith so important and necessary when it comes to our salvation? So what we see starting there in verse 5 through 8. And what we're going to see here is, is this, that faith is necessary, that faith is important, when it comes to our salvation, because faith is the means by which we receive a righteous verdict from God. That faith is the means by which we receive a righteous verdict from God. So starting there in verse 5, look there with me, down through verse 8, what Paul's going to do is he's going to make a contrast. He's going to contrast two different ways that people seek to receive a righteous verdict from God. So these are two different approaches, two different ways people seek to receive a righteous verdict from God. And the first way he's going to mention is this. It's that you can try and earn a righteous verdict from God by your works. By your works. So what we see, Paul stating there at the very beginning there in verse 5. Look there with me. Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So what Paul's doing here in verse 5, he's quoting Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. And in that particular verse, Moses says that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And what he means by that is that those who pursue righteousness based on the law, meaning, meaning if you're trying to obtain a righteous verdict from God based on your own works and based on doing the law, then there's only one way that you're ever going to accomplish that. There's only one way that you're ever going to be able to accomplish that. And that one way is this. You have to do the commandments. Like all of them. All the time. Without fail. Perfectly. Your entire life. Like if you accomplish that, if you do that, then you can gain a righteous verdict from God. That's what it means to try and earn a righteous verdict from God based on your works. It, it doesn't just mean that your good works outweigh your bad works. It means you don't have any bad works and all you have are good works. It, it means that, you, that you, you have to do the commandments in order to live. And you don't have to just do, again, some of them. You have to do all of them, all of the time, perfectly, without fail, every second of every day of your life. You manage to pull that off, then you live. Meaning you're spared from eternal death, you're spared from God's judgment, you're, spared, you're spared from God's wrath, and you live forever. And so just feel the weight of that, right? 
like you hear that, like that, that's crushing. Like that's a burden that we can't bear. Like that's hopeless. Because I don't care how moral or how good or how religious you are, you can't do this. Like it's, it's impossible. It, it's kind of like playing one of those carnival games at, at Worlds of Fun where you try and shoot a basketball through a hoop that's half the size of the basketball. Anybody else fell, you know, I mean, got sucked into that? I spent hundreds of dollars as a kid trying to shoot that ball through that little goal, that hoop, that's half the size of the basketball. Like, it can't happen. Theoretically, I wanted the, the stuffed animal. But practically, it was impossible. It's the same thing here. Earning a righteous verdict from God based upon doing good works sounds theoretically possible. It's not. Our hearts are too depraved. Our hearts are too sinful. Our motives are too corrupt. Like, it can't be done. But this is exactly what many of the Jews in Paul's day were trying to do. And I believe there are some here this morning. That's what some here this morning are trying to do as well. Trying to earn a righteous verdict from God based upon your good works. You're doing the best you can do to live the best Christian life that you can do. You're trying to do the best you can do to, to do all the things you're supposed to do and check all the boxes you're supposed to check and be the good moral person you're supposed to be and do all the religious duties and activities you're supposed to do. Because deep down in your heart, you believe if you just try hard enough, then God will see your effort and your good deeds and he'll say, yeah, that's good enough. You can enter into my kingdom. I'll declare you to be righteous in my, in my sight. But thank God, right? That's not the gospel. Like, that is not how we obtain a righteous verdict from God. We don't obtain a righteous verdict from God by our works. Instead, you see this on your hand out there, we receive a righteous verdict from God by faith. Did you catch that? We don't earn it, we receive it. We don't earn it by works, we receive it by faith. And there's a world of difference between the two things. And that's the whole point Paul's making next here in verse 6, look there with me. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, so then again, see the contrast here, right? Righteousness based on the law, verse 5. Righteousness based on faith here in verse 6. And what Paul does in verse 6, he, he personifies this, this righteousness based on faith. And, and here's what the, this righteousness based on faith says. Look at the rest of verse 6. It says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it? And the it here is a reference to 
the, the righteousness based on faith. What does the righteousness based on faith say? It doesn't say that in verse 6 and 7, but here's what it says. It says, the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So what Paul's doing here, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. And these verses here, um, in verses 6 through 8 there in, in Romans chapter 10, those are some hard verses to kind of follow and to make sense of. And what in the world is Paul doing here? But in order to make sense of those, these verses, again, it's important to remember the context of what Paul's doing here. He's contrasting, he's making a contrast, he's contrasting the righteousness that comes from the law, based on the law, with the righteousness that's based on faith. And so then, that's the reason then that he brings up this whole idea of ascending into heaven and bringing Christ down and, and descending into the, the abyss, which is a reference to the realm of the dead and raising Christ up from the dead. The reason he brings those up is because those are works. Those are things that we do. Those are deeds that are performed and activities that are, that are accomplished and that we do. And as a result, they're in direct contrast to the righteousness that's based on faith. The righteousness that's based on faith doesn't have to ascend to heaven in order to, to bring Christ down to the earth so he can die on the cross. And it doesn't have to descend into the abyss, the realm of the dead, in order to raise Jesus from the dead. Like, those aren't things we have to do. Those aren't works that we have to perform in order to be declared righteous by God and to receive a righteous verdict from God. And do you know why we don't have to do those things? Because God's already done them for us. He's already done all the works that are needed for us to be saved. He's already done all the works that are needed in order for us to receive a righteous verdict from him. He's already sent Jesus to this earth to live and to die on the cross. He's already raised Jesus from the dead, conquering sin and death. God's already accomplished those things for us. He's performed these works for us. He's brought them near, using the language of verse 8, to us in the message of the gospel, the word of faith. And so since God's already done the work, All we're to do then is to receive it by faith. And this is huge when it comes to our understanding of the gospel, right? Like, it's in this way that the message of the gospel then isn't something you do. The message of the gospel isn't something you accomplish. The message of the gospel is something that God has done already in Christ. We're supposed to simply receive it by faith. So then this is why faith is important when it comes to our salvation. That's, that's the why of faith. Faith is the means by which we receive a righteous verdict from God that God has accomplished for us in Christ. You don't earn it by works because it's not something you do. Instead, you receive it by faith because it's something that God does for us and has already done for us 
in Christ. So that's the why of faith, which then leads to the what of faith. Like what then, that's, that's the why, but now what does this faith entail? What does this faith consist of? What does this faith involve? Well, that's what we see next there in verse, verses 9 through 13. Look there with me. Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So within those two verses there, verse 9 and, and verse 10, Paul unpacks, he explains what, what saving faith consists of, what, what it entails, what it involves and includes. And so you see two things, right? First, we see that saving faith entails or consists of believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's what he says at the very beginning of verse 9 there. That's what he says again at the very beginning of verse 10. We talked about this before, right? When he talks about believing that, that God raised Jesus from the dead, this means a whole lot more than just intellectual assent and just believing in the historical reality, just believing the facts that God raised Jesus from the dead. I, I believe that really I believe that really happened. This James, right, talks about how even the demons believe that intellectually. They have the knowledge of that. So they believe that happened. And so that, it's not just what this belief means, what faith means. It means so much more than just intellectual assent. Instead, when, when Paul talks about believing in Jesus' resurrection, what he means is relying upon it, trusting in it, relying upon it. It means you're, you're relying upon Jesus' death and resurrection as your one and only hope for being declared righteous by God. It's your one and only hope. This death, this resurrection, it's your, it's your one and only hope. It's all you got. You got nothing else. It's, it's your only hope for being saved and rescued from God's wrath and being declared righteous and receiving righteous judgment from God. And here, here's what that means. It, it means you, you, you come to the end of yourself. There's nothing you can do. There's no other hope you have. Nothing else can cause God to render to you a righteous verdict. Nothing. only Jesus. He's your only hope. He died on the cross to take your guilty verdict upon himself and, and con was condemned in your place for your sin. And then three days later, he, he rose again, gaining victory over death so that all those who place their faith in, who rely upon his perfect record of righteousness his substitutionary death on the cross, his victorious resurrection, will receive then Jesus' perfect record of righteousness, declared righteous in God's sight, and will live forever. That's what it means to believe in Jesus and place your faith in Jesus. But, but that's not all that saving faith entails, right? Secondly, then, you see this on your hand up there. Saving faith entails confessing with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord. Confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul says there at the the very beginning of verse 9, and then also at the very end of verse 10 there. And this is huge here, right? Like saving faith isn't just believing, relying upon Jesus in our hearts. If that belief is genuine and true and real, then that belief then will manifest itself in the confession and the acknowledgement of Jesus from your lips. In other words, there's no such thing as a cockroach Christian. Anybody ever? My office is filled with cockroaches. Do you know when cockroaches come out? In secret at night. Undercover. So nobody can see them. So I don't see them and stomp on them all throughout the day while I'm trying to prepare a sermon. Right? So they come out at night. There's no such thing as, as cockroach Christians. And so like true saving faith includes a public, verbal confession, acknowledgement from your lips with words that Jesus is your Lord. Meaning he's king, he's the ruler, he's the, he's the master, he's the one who has ultimate rule and reign and authority over your life. In other words, it means that Jesus doesn't just have a say in your life, it means that Jesus has the say in your life. And there's a huge difference between those two things. The say in your life, meaning over everything, the say that Jesus has in your life as Lord, as King, as ruler, it, it's, it's comprehensive, it's exhaustive, doesn't have limits. It reaches into each and every area of your life, over your money, over your career, over your relationships, your, your thought life, your calendar, your, your life decisions, your entertainment choices, and everything else. He's Lord King who reigns and rules over everything. That's what genuine biblical saving faith entails. It's not, please listen to this, it's not just a vague, generic belief in God. It's not just a vague, generic belief in the person of Jesus. It's not just intellectual belief that you believe the facts that, that Jesus died and was resurrected and you, you believe that in your head. It's not what biblical saving faith entails. Instead, it entails belief in your heart in which you're relying on Jesus' death and resurrection as your one and only hope for being declared righteous by God. And that belief in your heart has led to a confession and acknowledgement, a verbal acknowledgement with your lips that he's not only the Savior, but he's also your, your Lord. But here's the cool part. I mean, all that was cool, but here's, here's another cool part. Look at, look at what Paul says next in verse 11 through 13 here. He says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be Save. The key words there in verses 11, 12, and 13 is the word everyone or the word all, right? 
In verse 11, he says, everyone who believes. And in verse 13, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In verse 12, he says, all who call on, on him. This right here is it's why faith is the means of our salvation and why faith is the means by which we receive a righteous verdict from God. It's the means of our salvation so anybody and everybody can get in on it. Does that make sense? Like faith is the means by which we receive a righteous verdict from God and are saved because it doesn't matter then what ethnic group you're a part of or what gender you are or what your age is or what other, any other demographic you are. Instead, faith levels the playing field and makes salvation available to anybody and everybody. It shows no distinction. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, or black, or white, or a man, or a woman, or an adult, or a child. Anybody and everybody can rely upon Jesus and his death and his resurrection. It's their only hope for being rescued from God's wrath. Anybody and everybody can confess Jesus and acknowledge Jesus with their lips that he's their Lord. It doesn't matter who you our faith makes salvation available to all. Leads next then to the how of faith. So we've seen the, the why of faith, the, the what of faith, the next, the how of faith. In other words, here's what I mean by that. In verses 14 and 15, what we're going to see is, is how this kind of saving faith comes about. We, we see what, what needs to happen in order for this kind of saving faith to come about. We're going to see what needs to happen, what, what needs to precede this sort of saving faith, what needs to precede it in order to bring this sort of saving faith about. And we see this in, in this, these chain of events that Paul describes here, starting in verse 14 and extending through verse 15. Look there with me. If you remember at the, the end, it's important to to connect, though, verse 13 and then into verse 14 and 15. So remember the end of verse 13 there, right? Paul here quotes from Joel chapter 2, which says that everyone, no matter who you are, no distinction, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in verse 14, he's going to explain what needs to happen in order for someone to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. There are specific things that have to happen for someone to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord to be saved doesn't just pop out of nowhere. Like, whoa! Instead, there are specific things that precede somebody calling on the name of the Lord. So what are those things? Well, Paul tells us in verse 14. He says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So, so do you follow right, those chain of events that Paul's describing there? The end goal is, is the end of verse 13, right? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
But in order for that to happen, in order for someone to call on the name of the Lord, they have to first believe. But in order for them to believe, they have to first hear the good news of the gospel. But in order for them to hear the good news of the gospel, someone has to preach it to them. Meaning not just to preach, like proclaim is what that word means, to herald, to speak, to share, to proclaim. But in order for someone to preach the good news to them, someone has to first be sent to them. That, that's the logic. That's the chain of events and all the events that lead up, boom, 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 call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Just doesn't pop out of nowhere. There's specific events that, that lead, that precede that. So that's why when we get to verse 17, look at verse 17. Verse 17 is a summary of these chain of events that Paul describes there in verses 14 and 15. Here's a summary of these chain of events. So, in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So right there, right? That's the how of faith. This is how faith, saving faith comes about. You see it on your hand out there, that faith comes from hearing and hearing comes through the preaching or the proclamation of the word of Christ, meaning the gospel. Again, this is huge. Saving faith just doesn't pop out of nowhere. People just don't all of a sudden just have saving faith. Instead, in order for someone to have saving faith, to believe the gospel, they first have to hear the gospel. But in order for someone to hear the gospel, someone has to verbally communicate and share the gospel with them. I know that's like, well, duh, I... Really? Like this is, it's why we send missionaries, right? It's why we preach through long sermons, through long books of the Bible on Sunday mornings. It's why we build our entire service around the gospel. That's why we just, the songs we sing, just saturate the songs we sing with gospel. That's why we do personal evangelism. That's why we study the Bible in our kids' classes that, that meet before the service and during the service. That's why we give almost 30% of our offering each Sunday morning that goes in that box back there. 30% of everything that goes in there goes, through, goes to local and global disciple-making efforts. So the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel will, will happen so that people will hear it and so people will believe it and so people will call in the name of the Lord to be saved. And so personalize this for a moment, right? I mean, just, just think about this just for a moment. Personalize this. Think about your unbelieving neighbor. Think about your unbelieving coworker. Think about your unbelieving family member. If the chain of events here in verses 14 and 15 are true, then do you know what that means? That person that you're thinking about right now, they're not going to believe and call in the name of the Lord Jesus to save them unless they hear the gospel. It ain't happening. But the only way they're going to hear the gospel is if you or someone else proclaims it to them and shares it with them. Why is that? Because faith, verse 17, comes by hearing. And hearing comes through the proclamation of the word of God. There's no other way. 
You can pray all you want to. Lord, save them, save them, save them. Somebody's got to tell them. They got to hear it. And so, yeah, let's pray. But let's get busy making sure they've heard. And the only way to make sure they've heard is if somebody tells them. Because if they don't hear, they're not going to believe. And if they don't believe, they're not going to call in the name of the Lord to be saved. That's God's design for how it happens. And you say, well, what about this election sermon? People aren't saved simply by the fact that God has chosen who he's going to save before the foundation of the world. He uses means to save people. And so the same God who wrote chapter 9 of Romans 10 wrote verses 14 and 15 and 17 here in Romans chapter 10. They have to hear the gospel to believe the gospel. And God's sent us to proclaim and to share it with, with them. This then leads finally to the responsibility of faith, the responsibility of faith. And it's what we see in verse six, 16 there. Look there with me. Paul lists, right, these chain of events that lead to a person believing the gospel, calling on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. So it all has to happen. He then says this in verse 16. But, this is some of the saddest words in all of the Bible. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Don't have time to jump into all this, but within the context here, the they that he's talking about here is a reference to Jew and Gentile. But he's, he's about to make a quick transition to, to just focusing on Israel here and the Jews here. And throughout Romans, we've seen this phrase that he uses here in verse 16. We've seen this phrase already, obeyed the gospel. We're going to see it again in Romans as well. That's Paul's shorthand, or, or that's synonymous with, that's in reference to believing the gospel. That in verse 16, when he says, not all obeyed the gospel, then he quotes Isaiah, and he, says, he explains what he means by obeyed the gospel. By, by saying, who has believed what he has heard from us. That, that's what it means to obey the gospel. The proper response to the gospel is to believe the gospel, to trust the gospel by faith. So that, that's what Paul's saying here in verse 16 here. He's saying that, that not all, and he's about to really hone in on Israel here, has believed the gospel and placed their faith in Christ. Which, think about it, right? in light of the chain of events that we just saw, then the reality of verse 16 then raised some serious questions. If most Israel hasn't believed, then does that mean that no one was ever sent to them? And if no one was ever sent to them, does that mean that no one ever proclaimed to them and preached to them the gospel? And if nobody ever preached to them and proclaimed to them the gospel, does that mean that they never heard the gospel? No, it doesn't mean any of that. Like God, Jesus sent, came, number one. Then Jesus sent apostles to proclaim, to preach the gospel. So they were sent somebody, somebody's, and those somebody's preached the gospel, so then did they hear it? Maybe they didn't hear it. Maybe that's their excuse. Well, that's the question Paul poses there in verse 18. Look there with me. 
He says, but I ask, have they, kind of honing in on Israel here, not heard? So is that why they haven't believed? They haven't heard? And look at his answer. Indeed, they have. They've heard. And he quotes Psalm 19, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So they've heard it. They, they've, they've listened to it. They've, they've heard it. They, can, they can't say, we didn't, we didn't hear it. We didn't know. Well, then, then, then begs this question. Okay, maybe they heard it, but maybe they didn't understand it. Right? Maybe, maybe that's why they didn't believe because they, and call on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved because they didn't understand it. Well, that's the next question Paul raises there in verse 19. And the answer he gives here is that, is that even the Gentiles understood the message that was proclaimed. And, and they weren't even seeking after the Lord. And so then if the Gentiles understood this message and they weren't even seeking after the Lord, then Israel of all people should have understood it as well. And then in verse 21, Paul quotes from Isaiah 65 to describe God's patience, to describe the great lengths that God has gone through to make sure that Israel has heard and the great lengths he's gone through to, to save Israel. Look at verse 21. It says, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands I've held up my hands, meaning I've sent preachers. They've preached. You've heard. I'm holding out this message to you, Israel, to a disobedient and contrary people. So then do you see Paul's point in all this and why he's including these chain of events that he did in verses 14 and 15? He included these chain of events in verses 14 and 15, to show Israel that their failure to be saved is their fault. It's not his fault. That's the whole point. God's done everything. Everything that was needed for Israel to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. He sent them preachers. Those preachers preached. Israel heard. But then you had this break in the chain that happened that somehow, some way along the way caused Israel to not call in the name of the Lord to be saved. And so whose fault is it that the chain broke? It's not God's. It's Israel. They're the ones who failed to believe. And because they failed to believe, they, they didn't call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And so they're the only ones to blame. They can only blame themselves for why they're not saved and for why they still stand guilty before the judgment bench of God. And listen to me, the same is true for us here in this room. Like if you're not saved... It's not God's fault. It's your fault. Like, hear that. Especially in a lot of that chapter we looked at before chapter 10. If you're not saved, it's not God's fault. It's your fault. You're the one to blame. You broke the chain. 
God didn't break the chain. You broke it. It's your fault. And because of that, you don't have any excuses. You can't blame your parents. You can't blame your environment. You can't blame anything for your failure to believe. God's done absolutely everything for you to be able to call on the name of the Lord Jesus to save you. So then for some of you, he gave you Christian parents. He sent them to you to share and to proclaim the gospel to you so that you could hear it. For others of you, he put you in gospel-believing churches to grow up in so that you could hear the preaching of the gospel. For others of you, he sent and put Christian friends in your life who would share the gospel with you and proclaim the gospel to you so you could hear it. And all of you this morning have been sent a preacher, like behind this pulpit, has been sent to you to preach the gospel to you so that you can hear it. And so then just like Israel here, you don't have any excuses. You've heard and so here's the deal. Now it's up to you. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Are you going to be like Israel and, and break the chain that leads to you calling on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved? Or are you going to believe? Are you going to rely on Jesus? Not your works to earn a righteous verdict from God. You're going you're to rely upon Jesus and his substitutionary death on the cross and his victorious resurrection from the dead as your one and only hope for being rescued from God's wrath and being declared righteous by God. And are you then going to acknowledge with your lips and confess with your mouth that that Jesus who saved you is also the Lord and the King of your life. That's the point of this passage this morning. And I pray that if that's, if that's you, if you have heard, but you have never truly believed, you thought you've believed, but it's just all a bunch of head knowledge, or it's just, but a, it's just a, a vague, generic belief in God and the person of Jesus but you never really relied. You turn from yourself and confess Jesus as Lord. Oh, I would encourage and plead with you this morning that God has sent a preacher and that preacher has preached and you have heard. And so believe upon him. Call upon him to save and to rescue you. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. And do pray for those that are here this morning, for even those that might be watching on, online. And God, I pray that if there is anybody who has just been deceived and who's just been fooled into believing that they really believe and that they're really a Christian and that they really have faith in Jesus, but they really don't, I pray that you would use just the truth of your word this morning 
and the why of faith and the what of faith and the how of faith and the responsibility of faith to convict and to expose anyone who is living in deception and anyone who needs to truly, for their first time in their life, believe and rely upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus to be declared righteous in your sight and to save and to rescue them from God's eternal wrath. I pray that you would work that in their hearts this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.